You may be seated. Good morning. If you're elementary age kid, uh, you are welcome to go downstairs with these guys for the Mercy House Kids class. Sorry, Jonathan, you're too old for the class. All right, Book of Acts. Uh, we've been walking through this book for some time. And we've been finding that ordinary people are doing very extraordinary things. They are boldly proclaiming the gospel. Uh, They are uh, supernaturally demonstrating the gospel through a number of different ways that that, uh, God is is giving them this power to to heal. They're giving them power to be bold and power to be unified, even though they're from very different backgrounds. And we've been saying that they've done that because they have focused on Christ and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they advance the mission, we talked about this last week, most of you weren't here, but uh, we, as, as they would advance the mission, they would then experience persecution. And so last week we looked at Acts chapter 6, and we saw that the persecution heated up to the point where someone was actually killed for their faith. And so we have the first Christian martyr, and that was Stephen. And this is the result that you just heard read, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And you want to grab a Bible there on the floor, follow along with me. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Saul approved of his execution. Talking about Stephen, okay? First Christian martyr. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's not good. It's not good. The the church is scared. The church is hurting. They've seen one of their own go down, and they are scattering. They are leaving Jerusalem just as quickly as they possibly can can, and as Saul sees this first one goes down, he decides he's going to go on a crusade to eradicate Christianity from the face of the planet. And so he starts going house to house, dragging people out, incarcerating them, and we know he's capable of even causing their death. So you think at this point, show's over. Christianity's done for. It's a nice run. A few thousand people were impacted, but this thing's probably over with this kind of persecution. But that's not what happens. Verse 4 of, of chapter 8 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What? You've just seen one of your own go down to be stoned to death for their faith, and your response as you flee that city is to preach the word? Yeah. That's exactly what they did. They refused to shut up, even though they knew that their lives could be lost in the process. Now, you think, well, we must be talking about the apostles. Of course, the apostles, they would risk their life for the gospel. But we're not talking about the apostles. Apostles stay put in Jerusalem. It's ordinary Christians. (laughs) Most of them, we don't even know their names. They, They don't get their name in here. Just ordinary Christians that had come to faith over the last few months, hearing the preaching of the apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit, and 
as they scatter, they then start to share the gospel in other towns and other cities because they had the whole, same Holy Spirit that the apostles had. And so they had the same capacity as the, as the apostles did as they go out into these different towns and cities. Acts 1.8 is happening. Remember back Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the thesis statement of Acts. Uh, Jesus says this to the, to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Jesus said that's what's going to happen. And it's happening. They're moving out of Jerusalem. They're moving into Judea. And so the mission of God is, is happening. And that's part of what Acts is. It's, it's chronicling the mission of God, how it starts in Jerusalem and moves out to the other ends, other ends of, the, of the earth. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, mission. The who, the what, and the how of the mission. Who does the mission? What is required of those who do the mission? And how is the mission accomplished? The who, the what, and the how. So the who. The who is ordinary Christians. Just ordinary Christians. And we don't know most of their names, but we know a few. We know this guy named Philip. Verse 5 of chapter 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, who is Philip? Philip's one of the, the seven deacons that was chosen back in Acts chapter 6 when they weren't taking care of the needs of the widows in the church. And Philip is asked, along with six other persons, including Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr, to do the widow's ministry. Philip had a day job. He wasn't one of the apostles. He was not a full-time you know, vocational minister. This, this guy was an ordinary Christian taking care of the widows of the church. And when this guy gets scattered out of uh, Jerusalem, he starts sharing the gospel. But it's not just anywhere. It's in the city of Samaria, which is also in the region of Samaria. Sometimes that can be a little bit confusing. But this, this is pretty radical, what he's doing. That he would go into a place like Samaria and start to talk about the gospel. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. This is something akin to what we see in the, 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 the Israel-Palestinian kind of uh, hatred. Right? This, this hatred for one another that we often see. And we look at that and we go, what, what's the deal? We, we, can't, we look into it, we, a lot of times we can't understand it. Right? I think we'd feel similarly about this, about Samaritans and, and, and the Jews. Why do you hate each other so bad? Right? And so here Philip's going into enemy territory, into a city where people hate him. And he looks around and goes, this looks like a great place to proclaim the gospel. And he starts talking to the Samaritans about the gospel. So this is, we start to get into the what. Okay, the who is ordinary Christians. The what, number one in the what, there's, there's four of these, I think, uh, is you make the most of every opportunity. This is the part of the what of the mission. What is it, what's required of those that are on the mission? You make the most of every opportunity. You assume no matter where you are, God's at work. Whether you're in class or you're at your job or you're in your neighborhood or you're with a friend. Like, like you're, you're looking, you're hunting, you're, you're open. God, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? And so when Philip 
ends up in Samaria. I don't think he necessarily planned to be there. He's just trying to get away from Jerusalem. He's trying to keep it from getting killed. And when he ends up in Samaria, he, he's like, okay, God, maybe you want to do something here. You make the most of every opportunity. Uh, Apostle Paul writes this to the Colossians, right? He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. It's the way the New International Version translates it. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You get this sense, Paul's saying, in all times, all places, when you're with all people, you need to be thinking about, is this an opportunity? The Holy Spirit may be doing something here, and you need to be aware of that, and you want to join Him in that mission that the Holy Spirit is leading you on. So make the most. He's also pointing people to Jesus. This is the second part of the, of the what, what's required. You point people to Jesus. It says that He proclaimed to them the Christ. The Christ. Not just any Christ, the Christ. Christ is uh, translated from a Greek word that means anointed one. It's the word that the Jews use to talk about the Messiah. And so he, the reason he's talking about the Messiah to the Samaritans is because the, the Samaritans are looking for a Messiah. We know that from John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman and she says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the Samaritans are looking for the Messiah. Now, the Samaritans have a lot of problems with their religion. Okay, they have a corrupt Bible. Uh, because they have a corrupt Bible, they have corrupt beliefs about God. They have corrupt worship. Everything about their religion is a total wreck. But they are looking for the Messiah. And so what Philip does is he doesn't lead with, here's all the reasons you Samaritans are wrong and we Jews are right. He leads with Jesus. He leads with the Messiah. And so as he proclaims that Messiah to them, he doesn't come at them from a place of superiority. I think this is an easy thing to fall into as a Christian, and, 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 and it becomes a greater risk the older you get, the more mature you get in Christ, is, is, is that you can be, become superior to those that you're trying to share the gospel with. And you just think, what's your problem? Why don't you get it? And it's sort of like the three-year-old sibling talking bad about the two-year-old sibling. They're such a baby. You seen this? And you look at you like, this is so ridiculous, right? The three-year-old saying to the two-year-old brother, you're such a baby. You're like, that was you last year, okay? We do the same thing. Right? We're talking to someone who's not a believer. It's like we forgot what it's like to not be a believer. Like, oh, you, why don't you get it? Right? That's not how Philip approaches the Samaritans. And on top of that, Samaritans, probably not all that happy to see Philip. Right? There's some cultural barriers going on there, racial barriers. There's a lot of stuff going on that he, he's pushing through that, and he's not approaching them from a position of superiority. And, and here's, here's how it goes. Verse 6. And again, this is, this is big. Right? This is the first proclamation of the gospel outside of Jerusalem, at least that we have described. Verse 6. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of the many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in the city. I think God's pretty excited that Philip is 
proclaiming the gospel to the Samaritans. Right? The Holy Spirit's like, I'm all over that. And he, and he empowers Philip to proclaim the gospel. Right? He's, he's pointing them to Jesus. He's telling them about the Christ. And as he's doing that, the Holy Spirit's giving him power to then demonstrate that message. And he's doing healings. Stephen did healings. It wasn't just the apostles that did healings. And he's driving out demons. This is the first time we really see any kind of a mention of the demonic. And it seems like the demonic is very prevalent in the Samaritan, in their experience, in their society. Partly because they have false religion. And in a place that has false religion, oftentimes Satan will give a frontal attack. He won't stay subtle. He'll, he'll, he'll try to intimidate. And so he's, his work is out there in the open. And, and then ordinary, spirit-filled, Jesus-focused Philip shows up and the demons are running for the hills. And the city is filled with great joy, filled with great joy to see these glimpses of what Christ can do and will do when he returns. You say, ah, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. It's happened here. We've seen the lives of those that have been oppressed by the, the devil, and we've been a part of delivering them from that. Some of you went on the InterVarsity trip, serve up. There, there was a, a group of students that experienced this on the serve up trip over spring break, where a student was demonized and was experiencing the influence of, of the demonic. And people got there and they prayed over the person and the person was delivered from that and then the person became a Christian. Right? So, so it happens. It's oftentimes not a, a frontal attack as it, as it is here in, in Samaria, but more and more as people become less Christianized, I'm seeing that... Satan is more willing to be overt and to use more of a frontal attack. So no, if you're experiencing that, there's a power greater than the demonic. And it is King Jesus. And he, he exerts all power. He, he defeated uh, Satan at the cross. And he proved that in his resurrection. So uh, he's proving that through Philip and his ministry to the Samaritans. Now, uh, how did he do it? He, he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? This, is, this is the how. The who is ordinary Christians. Right? The what, so far, is making the most of every opportunity, pointing people to Jesus. And the how is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter and John come to check this out. Right there in Jerusalem, they hear Samaritans are becoming Christians. I think they're probably a little suspect about that. Suspicious, and they go and they check it out. And they notice Samaritans aren't really experiencing the work of the Spirit. They lay hands on them. The Spirit comes, and they get to experience that visually. And I'm, this is not how everyone receives the Holy Spirit. I think some denominations take this and make a doctrine out of it and say, this is how you must receive the Holy Spirit. Somebody has to lay hands on you, and then you get the Spirit. Uh, I don't think that's what, what's being displayed here. But for the most part, because Acts also describes people getting the Spirit in other ways and not just the laying on of hands, okay? Uh, it can happen that way. It can be a refreshing that comes from the Holy Spirit as people lay hands and pray for one another. Uh, but what happens is, is that Peter and John get to see Samaritans filled with the Holy Spirit and go, whoa, this thing is going global, just like Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, Philip is open to the Spirit working in his life. He's open to going anywhere, saying the gospel to anyone who's willing to listen. And God doesn't waste this. It doesn't take much time for God to say, okay, next assignment. 
All right, so we're going to jump down to Acts 8, verse 26. Acts 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip gets his next assignment. He gets his next assignment from an angel. And the angels pop up in the book of Acts a few times. This is one of those times. And doesn't give him a lot of information. Just says, I want you to go to this particular road, uh, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke throws in, it was a desert place. I don't think this is a place you'd want to go to vacation. I don't think this was a, ha- a happy place. I don't think this was a, a, a place that, that had lots of you know, motels and restaurants where you could pull off on the side of the road and, and, uh, and get some refreshment. I, I think this was a, a pretty desolate kind of a place. But Philip doesn't ask any questions. He's like, okay, I'm going. Doesn't know what he's going for, doesn't know who he's going to talk to, doesn't know why he's going there. He just, he just goes. And he gets there and he sees an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this guy works for... Uh, an Ethiopian queen, uh, takes care of, of, of the money. Uh, he is a Jewish proselyte or a God-fearer, we might call him. So he's not Jewish by birth, but he has somehow been exposed to the Jewish religion and has decided, I want to follow the God of the Jews. And so they had kind of a special track for those that wanted to still worship the God of the Jews, even though they weren't Jew, Jewish. And so he would have gone through a a cleansing, a washing, and he would then been able to worship at the temple in the Gentile courts. And that was the very uh, exterior of uh, the temple. He couldn't have gone into the next court of men, court of women, couldn't have gone any deeper into that. But he could go into the very exterior of the temple. And so he had been there worshiping. Um, he is coming back. Somehow he's got his hands on a scroll, which means he's probably got resources. He has some money, purchased a, a scroll, and he's, he's reading the book of Isaiah. Now, Philip doesn't know this. <coughs> Philip's just been told to go to this desert road. He's standing there. He sees a eunuch, and the Holy Spirit gives him the nudge. Go talk to that guy. Have you gotten the Holy Spirit nudge before? If you're a Christian and you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you've gotten the Holy Spirit nudge. That nudge... It says, call this person, right? When you call the person and the person's in crisis, and they're like, how did you know? The Holy Spirit nudge, right? Or uh, give this money to this person or this organization, and and you you feel compelled, like, I I need to do this. And you wake up the next morning, and you feel compelled to do it. You're like, okay, I got to do this. And then you find out, wow, the person was really in need. That organization was in need. Or this compulsion to pray. Right? You, get, you get the Holy Spirit nudge, like, pray for this person, maybe a person you haven't thought about in years, and all of a sudden, they're on your mind, and you're praying for that person. You call that person up, hey, is everything okay? No, everything is not okay. How'd you know the call? Because, I don't know, the Spirit was just compelling me to pray, right? Or, or you're compelled to speak. 
you just know I've got to have this conversation with this person. I've got to encourage them. I've, I've got to uh, preach the gospel to them. I, I, I just have to. And you keep waking up every morning, and boom, it's on your mind. And you just, the, the Spirit is compelling you. Uh, th- th- this happened the other, just last Sunday, actually. I, something that I, I had I'd been thinking about, I've been thinking about this particular person that's had some health problems, and I was thinking about James 5, where it says, if, if you have a sickness or you have some problems, you go to the elders, the elders lay hands on you and pray for you, and, and, and the, the sick person will become well. And I'm thinking, this person needs the elders to pray over them. And I've been thinking about it, and I hadn't done it yet, and I'd kind of dragged my feet on it, you know, and the nudge is coming, and I'm just not doing anything about it, which, don't do that, okay? <laughs> so I'm back there last week, uh, after the second sermon, I think, and uh, th- this person walks back there. And they don't ask for prayer from me. They want to know if they can pray f- for me. I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, God, this is, you're really making this easy. You know, you're just bringing this person right to me. And so they're praying over me. And the whole time, I'm, I'm just getting the nudge. And the nudge is, is saying, you've got to pray over this person. And you need to grab Chris Blount, one of the elders, just standing right next to you. And the two of you pray over this person. I'm like, got it, doing it. She finishes up praying for me. I go over. I'm like, can I pray for you? And she's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, just wait right here. I run over. I get Chris Blount. I'm like, Chris, come over here. Come, come. And so we lay hands on her, and we pray for her. And, uh, and, and, and then we get done, and she says, you won't believe this, but before I came to church this morning, I asked the Lord, Lord, would you compel someone to lay hands on me and pray for me today at church? I was like, wow, yeah. And then we get an email a few days later. She's like, I'm so much better. Thanks for your prayer. Right? Holy Spirit nudge. Look for that. Pray for that. And when you get it, don't, don't psych yourself out. Right? Oh, that's just a weird thought I had. I know it came from outside of me, and I didn't generate the thought, but ah, couldn't be. Any- no. Go for it. Pray for that person. Call that person. Encourage that person. Speak to that person. And as you do that, the Spirit will be in the work in your life in a fresh way, in a, in a more powerful way. Philip understood that. So he gets the Holy Spirit nudge. Go, go talk to this person. So uh, verse 30, Philip ran to him. Okay, he's in a chariot. <laughs> I love this. He's like, hey, just... Taking a jog out here on the, you know, desert road, you know. Uh, He runs to him, and he hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asks, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now, (laughs) I'm sure Philip is really lit up at this point. (laughs) Like This guy's reading Isaiah 53. This is one of the most overt passages in the Old Testament about the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Philip's like, what are you reading there? Like, Isaiah 53. He's like, yes. <laughs> this is a slow ball right over the plate. 
this is perfect, God. You knew it. You sent an angel. You sent your spirit. And the whole time you orchestrated this moment where this guy's reading Isaiah 53 and you put me right here next to the chariot. This is awesome. And, and these, these moments where, where you get the nudge and you follow the nudge and, and then you see that God was at work, it, it is, you get addicted to this, right? I just want more of this. God, I want to see you work more through me, in me. And, and, and to see my life in sync with the mission that you're already on, God. Obviously, God's the one on the mission. Philip didn't wake up in the morning and strategize for how he's going to reach Ethiopian eunuchs. He's saying, Lord, what do you want? I'm yours. He's like, go to this road. Okay. Go talk to that guy. Okay. And then he gets this opportunity to share the gospel. Now, we don't get to hear the conversation, which I'm sad about. But verse 35 says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This is the what, number three, okay, is use scripture. Use scripture. Make the most of every opportunity, point people to Jesus, and use scripture. The word has power. Paul calls it in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit. Not the sword of the Christian, but the sword of the Spirit. When the Word is used, the Holy Spirit's able to take that and do supernatural things with it. Paul writes this way many times. Here's a couple of ways, a couple of places. Ephesians 1.13, I've read this to some of you last week. In Him you also, when you heard the Word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So he's reminding the Ephesians. Remember when you became a Christian? You heard the word. And the Spirit used that word to convert you. Right? He says it another way in Romans 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. You use Scripture. It's God's word. It's the sword of the Spirit. It has power. And so not only do you want to tell people about your testimony and and to describe things about your experience with God, which Philip could have certainly done. This is not what he leads with, though. He leads with the Scripture. He points to the Scripture. Some older evangelistic, I'm going to call them techniques, are kind of taking people through a little booklet, which usually includes Scripture, okay? So that's good. But then getting down to the end of that booklet and then inviting people to pray a prayer, a sinner's prayer. The prayer's great. Prayer acknowledges sin, and the, and the prayer acknowledges the need for Savior. But, but sometimes it felt a little bit like click here for an Amazon Prime membership, right? If you just click here, you're a Christian. And that, that, that has not been helpful in a, in a lot of ways, okay? Now, some people, they actually convert in that moment, and they start to follow Christ. But some people, there's a premature profession of faith that happens. And then they walk around thinking, oh, well, I clicked the membership. I'm a Christian, but they never really came to fully understand the gospel. So I would say encouraging people to, to dig into Scripture, right? to expose them to Scripture, to invite people who are interested and hungry uh, to know more about Christ. Let's study Scripture together, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? the Gospels, because those give testimony to the person and work of Jesus. Now, this kind of thing happens on Sunday mornings. People come in... Week in, week out, you're hearing the word preached, and over time, you go, I think I get it. I think I've heard enough Bible 
where I now understand who Jesus is and what he's done for me, and I'm ready. I want to put my faith in Christ. And then, by God's grace, it's not a premature kind of profession. It's an authentic, genuine, saving faith. Now, evidently, part of that conversation that Philip had with the eunuch was about baptism. Because look what happens in verse 36. As they, came, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, again, as a Jewish proselyte, he had been baptized. He had been cleansed. The understanding was that those that are Gentile converts coming into the Jewish religion had to be cleaned up to, to be able to come into the religion. Now, if you were born into the, to, to a Jewish family, you didn't have to do that. But if you were a Gentile coming in as a proselyte, you did have to do that. And then the church co- comes in and says, actually, everyone has to be baptized. And part of that symbolism is everyone needs cleansing from sin in order to come in and be a part of, of the covenant community. It's also a profession of faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Literally, with your body as you're being immersed under the water and brought back out, you're saying, this is the gospel, and I believe this gospel. You're also saying that this has happened to you, that you have died to your old life, and in the power of the Spirit, you've been raised to live a new life, both in this life and the life to come. And so baptism, it's important. If you're a follower of Jesus, you haven't been baptized as a believer by immersion, you need to do that. You need to do that. It's, it's a command. And if you want to do that in this church, you need to come to Meet Mercy House on April 14th and sign up, okay? This is how we know that you are interested in baptism. We talk about baptism, and we uh, hear your testimony about your profession of faith. Uh, something unusual happens in this baptism. I must say that this has never happened to me when I was baptizing people. Verse 38, commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You thought that beam me up Scotty was just in Star Trek. Dude, it's right here in Acts. He, he brings the Ethiopian eunuch down in that water. When he comes out, he's gone. Now, I'm sure the eunuch had a whole entourage, right? I'm sure they're watching this. They're listening to this conversation about Isaiah 53 and the gospel being proclaimed, and the eunuch's like, sign me up. I want to be a follower of Jesus, and what you're telling me is followers of Jesus get baptized. There's water. Let's do it now. And they're all watching this, and they're going, oh, this is cool. Look, 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 our boss is getting baptized, and they bring him out, and boom, he's gone. Philip's gone. And he ends up 32 miles, we're talking like from here to Springfield, in Azotus. And what does Philip do? He starts preaching the gospel. (laughs) He's like, oh, next assignment. Let's do this thing. And he starts moving up, up the coastline there, city after city, sharing the gospel. And it reminded me of what Jesus says about those who are born of the Spirit in John 3. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Philip has opened himself to the work of the Spirit in in whatever way the Spirit wants to lead. He he doesn't say, I'm too busy. He doesn't say, I'm too scared. He doesn't say, that's too hard. He just goes. 
He just goes. This is number four in the what category, is the willingness to go. To go. Anytime, any place, at any cost. Anytime, any place, at any cost. This is what you've signed up for. If you become a Christian, you've respond, responded to the salvation that Christ has provided for you on the cross. Your response to that is making Jesus your king. And you hold your life with an open hand. And you say, anytime, anywhere, at any cost, whatever you want, Lord, that's, that's, that's my life right there. Take it. And this is Philip. This is Philip. And, and you see him being used by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes when you open that hand, he says, go. Sometimes you open that hand and, and present your life to him, he says, stay. Stay and be faithful. I think Philip did both. I think he, he did go and he did stay. We see this in Acts 21. This is an amazing little piece that Luke weaves back in, in in Acts 21, verse 7. And this is Luke describing his journeys with the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was Saul, right? His name was changed to Paul. And so Saul, who was standing there at the persecution and, and death and martyrdom of Stephen... Uh, the, the, the martyrdom that caused Philip to leave Jerusalem and to scatter. Uh, like 20 plus years passes. Luke and Paul are coming through Caesarea. And guess whose house they stop by? Philip. And this is a description of that little visit. Acts 21.7, when he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemy and we greeted the brothers and we stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Philip. Now he's got a nickname, the evangelist. There's a few nicknames in the book of Acts. He's got Barnabas, and got Philip the evangelist, others. And so when he got to Caesarea, evidently, the Holy Spirit said, You stay. You stay. You raise a family, you evangelize this particular town, this particular city. So much so that he became known as Philip the Evangelist. So this ordinary Christian who heard the gospel when the apostles preached it, trusted in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, held his life in an open hand, said, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere, I'll pay any price, and was used of God to bring the gospel outside of Jerusalem, through Judea, and into Samaria. And into Caesarea. And evidently, he raised some daughters that loved Jesus. So they prophesied. So God's Spirit was working in, in them. And so Saul, now Paul, who was the persecutor, who had killed one of his, probably his best friends, right? Sitting around the dinner table talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit throughout Paul's missionary journeys. So the who? Ordinary Christians. The what? Make the most of every opportunity. Point people to Jesus. Use scripture. Be willing to go or stay. No matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. And how do you do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now why would Philip do that? The reason he would do that is because he had been pursued by Christ 
He knew what Christ had paid to, to forgive him of his sins and to bring him into a relationship with him. And, and when he saw what Christ did for him, it compelled him to then give everything for the mission that Christ had placed him on. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. When Christ is sitting there with his disciples, he's on a mission. He's on a mission to save those disciples at that table on a mission to save those in Jerusalem. He's on a mission to save those in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's on a mission to save you and me. And he knew what it was going to take. And so he held his life in an open hand. And on that night on which he was betrayed, denied, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He held his life in an open hand, willing to do whatever it took, pay whatever price that needed to be paid in order to rescue them, to rescue us. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's describing to them that This thing he's about to do is not just for those in the room, but he's creating a new covenant community and that he was going to send them out with the gospel such that all nations, all tribes could be brought to faith in Christ and made a part of that covenant community. So as you consider what Christ has done for you, as you consider what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, what, what is he calling you to this morning? What is he asking of you? For some of you, he's calling you to put faith in Christ this morning for the first time. So perhaps you've been reading scripture. Perhaps you went on a spring break mission trip and you've been with Christians a lot and hearing about what they say about Jesus. And this morning, as you're hearing me talk about this, you're saying, yes, I want to put my faith in Christ. That's God's spirit. He's calling you to himself. And so if that's you, then receive the forgiveness that's given only through the Christ's death on the cross. Yield to him as your king, as your, as your Lord this morning. Others of us who are Christ's followers, we too have to ask ourselves, what, what is the Holy Spirit asking of us? In, in the domain where we live now, right, right? All the opportunities that are right under our nose, in our neighborhood, the place we work, our classrooms, our dorms, or perhaps in this region, ways the Holy Spirit is calling us to engage in mission in, in the very region that we, we live in, getting outside of Amherst perhaps, but still close by. Perhaps the Holy Spirit calling us to do some things cross-culturally, maybe here, maybe in another country somewhere. What, what He wants from you is for you to hold your life in an open hand, and say, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything, whatever the cost. And to do that before he tells you where he's going to send you. I think what we want, we want to kind of broker with God. We're like, tell me where you're going to send me. And then I will hold my life in an open hand. Not how it works. That's not how Philip lived his life. I'll go anywhere, whatever the cost. This is what the Holy Spirit is is calling you to do if you're a Christ follower. This is not just for the spiritual elite. This is for every Christian. 
is to hold their lives in an open hand. I've been thinking about uh, the, the, the days when Melanie and I were in college at the University of Texas and we were experiencing a, a campus-wide awakening. We didn't know it at the time. We just thought, this is, this is how God always works. But it was an awakening. And many, many students were coming to faith in Christ. The, the ministries on the, on the campus were, uh, were exploding. And I was thinking about some of the folks that were in our, our friendship group and where they went and what they did. Some stayed put in Austin. They got jobs, and they just poured their lives into local churches and poured their lives into the mission, the gospel mission there in Austin. I think about my friend David, who was my roommate for a while, who became the headmaster of a school, pouring his life into to, to, to high school students year in and year out. I think about my friend Darren, who became a professor at one of the universities there, Sam Houston State in, in Humble, Texas, where you serve up guys were. And he's part of, of, of a campus ministry there, and he's just pouring his life into college students there, day in and day out. The sweet, sweet, sweet ministry. I, I think of Stu and, and his friend who stayed in Austin and planted a, a really powerful church there that's making disciples and, and bringing the gospel uh, to that city. I think of my friend Chad, who uh, became an itinerant evangelist. He's literally traveling the world. A lot of it was in different countries in Africa, preaching the gospel and seeing Lots and lots of people respond in faith to the gospel. I, I think of my friend Jack, who I have a picture of. Uh, it's, not, it's not the greatest picture, but uh, it's, uh, he's on the left there. This is his family, but intermingled are folks that he is befriending in Marseille, France. And he, Marseille, France has got the highest Muslim po- population in any city or town in France. And he's planted his life there for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the many Muslims from many, many different countries that come to live there and to go to school there. And those are then coming to Christ and being sent back to their countries with the gospel. And he's just some guy from Texas that said, anywhere you want to go, God. Right? I, I think about Debbie, who uh, is a single woman. She went to uh, Russia 26 years ago with Campus Crusade for Christ. And she poured into many, many, many people there in Moscow, sharing the gospel, making disciples. Eventually, she went off of staff, but she stayed in Russia, stayed in Moscow, because that's home, and she loves it. And now she's a a photographer, but the whole reason she's there is to be intentional about sharing the gospel. Because she, as a college student, held her life in an open hand and said, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. Uh, this little family that was part of that movement as well, that's us when we first got here, okay? We're a little bit older, but we were part of that movement as well where, where we, we held our lives with an open hand. We said, God, wh- where do you want us to go? We'll go anywhere. We'll do anything. And we meant it. We would have gone to... A, Another country, we, 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 whatever the Lord had, had, had called us. But he called us here in 1999 to start Mercy House from scratch. And to see God reach people with the gospel and be built up as disciples. And then many of them sent out to, to different cities and countries all over the world. So I wonder if there's anyone in this room who's willing to do that.
to hold your life in an open hand and say, Lord, anywhere you want me to go. So just as a way to let him know that and even have a little accountability and let people around you know that, if you're willing, just stand up and hold your hands out. You sense that God, God is calling you to go anywhere, to, to, to yield to him in a fresh way, and to say, I will go anywhere. Right? Because as I prepared this sermon, I had to recontract with him and say, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I will pay whatever cost. Right? And thankfully, I'm married to a woman who feels exactly the same way. Right? So if you want to pray with me, let me pray for you. And you just want to pray that prayer to God. You can stand up, hold your hand out. And if it's just me, then it's just me. And we'll go. <laughs> God, we so much want to know all the details before we do this. And I know that's not how you work. And there are many, many nations who are unreached, many people groups. They don't even have a Bible that they can read in their own language. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves afresh this morning saying we will go anywhere, anytime, no matter the cost. And we do that not out of guilt or obligation, but because of what you've done for us, that you laid down your life for us. And so it is our privilege. It is a blessing. It is exciting to yield to you, our Lord, and your powerful Holy Spirit working in and through us. So Lord, I beg you to, to speak to each person here, to give them clarity around where you're calling them. And if it's stay put and pour your life into, into this place, then God, make that clear. If it's go, then help make that clear as well. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for what this bread and this cup symbolize and remind us of. So Lord, we pray your blessing over it and over our time together. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you're a Christ follower, we welcome you to the table.